News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC, the podcast that listens to you. I'm host Harry Siegel, here as ever with Professor Christina Greer and producer Alex Brooklyn. New State Senator Alessandra Biagi, fresh from her first budget, called in to break down for 10 minutes or so the $175 billion in change, mishmash of money and laws in the new fiscal year. Die new. After that, a spicy taste of Just Us. Just, just. Just Us. Our highly irregular new pod about justice and everything else that happens inside the courts. Victoria Bekempis and Alex Lynn talking with ABC's Christina Carrega about the Vetrano murder and much more. But, but first... But first, here's Ace reporter Rosie Goldenson sitting down with us at the McSilver Institute to talk about the city's sideways ferry hustle and much more. Rosie's now at thecity.nyc. That's a newly launched nonprofit newsroom. Congratulations. Welcome. With some heavy hitters covering, you know, the, the city. city. Just, Just enough for the, the city. Wow, wow, wow. Living just enough. Oh my God. Just, just enough for the, the city. city. Hello. Welcome to FAQ NYC. This is Harry Siegel. <laughs> Work with us, Harry. Work with us. Here, as ever, with uh, with Professor Christina Greer and Alex Lynn, and joining us from the city. It's up, official, bona fide, and launched. Rosie Goldenson, thanks for coming. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is this city we speak of? The city, um, not meaning the city government, even though that's how we often refer to it in articles, but the city, a new nonprofit uh, news organization, an independent site that's going to focus on we're doing local news, accountability journalism, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted in New York City is the goal. The city.nyc. You have an article there, I believe. Yes, I have an article up today um, about the the city's ferry system and the bidding process behind that and how we ended up on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ferry boats um, that maybe we didn't have to pay for if the city had gone in a different direction. So, so the ferries are like one of de Blasio's big things. He didn't get his monorail yet. And this has been – he's called this like a sort of a big add to the transportation uh, network and, and a big stop to the outer boroughs. Yeah, they're pretty he's heavily announced an expansion of it. Already. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of his signature you know, legacy items. Uh, and Alicia Glenn too recently listed it an uh, outgoing uh, – or uh, now former Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn listed it as one of her top three – uh, points of greatest pride in a Crane's interview I saw recently. So it's a big, um, it's a big part of the administration's. Uh, you know, it's one of their their big items. But this was a way for De Blasio to sidestep his beef with Cuomo and the N- MTA because you can't use your Metro card, right, on these ferries. You can't use your Metro card on them, and you know that's one criticism. The one of the reasons the the subsidies for the ferries are so high. And there's a, a, a recent Citizens Budget Commission report that goes into just how high the operating subsidies are. But one of the reasons they're so high is because there's a all the 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 fares are are pegged at 275, even though it actually costs a lot more to operate these boats. And that was done in the name of transit equity. So the idea behind it was okay, so you know everyone will have equal access to these ferries. They won't be super expensive for riders. But the thing is, there are other components of the ferry system, the way it's structured, 
that make it really only accessible to, to certain people. It's most accessible to people living on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some communities like Soundview that, you know, are, are more of a transit desert for real. But some of them, like the Brooklyn waterfront, you know, not necessarily so much. And, and the Post, right, they reported that, that the most used stops are pretty much all in the highest income areas? That's right. Yeah, the Post did an analysis, I think, either last week or early this week, you know, figuring out that these were high-income neighborhoods. And then, and then also there's this fare integration problem. So right. you have – if right. you, like, are, have a student metro card or, an, you know, reduced fare Subsidized. metro card, yeah. you know, a uh, uh, senior metro card – that doesn't work on the ferries, and a transfer doesn't work. Well, that was always my biggest question because if I have to take the subway to the ferry or take a bus to the ferry, I can't transfer you it. Would so have then I'm to paying pay an twice. additional two seventy five. So how is that a deal? It's not a deal. You would have to pay twice, and that's why you know I raised this at one of the uh, actually at a, a, a press conference about the BQX, which the the streetcar, which would have the same problem to Alicia Glenn, and she was kind of like, "Yeah, what?" You so I was like, well, "You have to pay twice." She was, you know, she kind of brushed it off, but I think that you know it it really encapsulates a fundamental tension of this administration, which mm-hmm. is on the one hand this idea of equity. And on the other hand, these kind of patrician tastes, you know, mm-hmm. like this idea – like this is the – if you look at the the concessions on the ferry, the whole – it's a premium service. Well, Harry and I are going to go take a, a little cruise on the ferry, pun intended. Um, what do you mean by the concessions on the ferry? They've got Wiley Dufresne Donuts now, I believe, oh. which is like, you know, celebra- a celebrity chef, a a, a oh, pioneer of, um, you know, molecular <laughs> gastronomy. Oh. I think that's right. Okay. But we should fact check that. But, you know, it's like. Too good to check. So it's not your it's not your regular. And when I did boat. that story, uh, it was clear what was there. Well, you know, look at these premium concessions, and then it, they were kind of taken aback. You know, they don't want the reputation of this is a fancy thing. They want it to be thought of as mass transit, but it's not mass transit. It's niche transit. So is this part of De Blasio's, I would say, relationship with the real estate crew? Where I mean, is he like trying to create essentially new hot neighborhoods by? Having the transportation there first. Yeah, I don't know if it was so much real estate driven. I don't. Yeah, I mean, you've got the Lower East Side, you've got Astoria, Soundview, uh, and and there's going to be an extension now to Ferry Point Park in the Bronx, which, uh, funny enough, is right on the Trump Golf Links course. So mm. it's like a, a a little boon for Trump is he'll ha- it'll drive mm. people to his public golf course that he that operates. we're paying for. <laughs> well, he, you know, he operates as a city golf course, but, you know, I, I think, don't know. Whenever I think about the mayor, I just think about real estate and sort of his relationship with real estate. And so I was, I'm curious as to the locations of the ferry. And, you know, when I think of Astoria, I think of a neighborhood that's essentially gone, you know, as far as affordability. When I think of the Lower East Side, it's the same thing. When I think of um, sound view, <laughs> sort of similar things. Yeah, so, and, and you can think of spl- developments like Astoria Cove or like Essex Crossing on the Lower East Side that are Ron Mollis, um, you know, allies of mm-hmm. uh, the administration and big housing plan implementers that are right there. But I, I will say it's funny. This was the one ex- or one of, I think, two examples the mayor used in that medium post. I don't know if you remember about how he wasn't rewarding his donors. He had promised he was going to 
tell everyone how how all these donors that hadn't gotten what they wanted. And I think there ended up being only one or two examples in the in the Medium post he put up. And it was Durst. And the example was Durst being one of the bidders on the ferry system losing and not getting that deal. So while the mayor was being investigated by the U.S. attorney, um, he kept saying, I'm not a crook. So at one point he said, I'm going to give you a list of all the uh, bribes that were not rewarded. And uh, this was a very stupid thing to say. And um, he promised it right away and they got asked for it for forever. And then finally he did a medium post with like two examples of favors he could have done and didn't. Um, speaking of this niche transportation system, you, you mentioned this, right? It's four million rides for the entire ferry system last year with the subsidy of $10.73 per ride. Um, Subway, 2.7 billion rides, which I think is more in a rush hour. I, I know it's more in a day than, than that total. Um, and a subsidy of a dollar and five cents per ride. So you're going to have people in the city saying, wait, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars buying the boats. We're spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year op- to, to pay Hornblower to operate the boats. We're also spending hundreds of millions of dollars on landings and barges for this project. When you add it all up, and, you know, budget people say you're not supposed to add capital and operating. But when you look at all the money together as a as a layperson, we're talking about nearly a billion dollars. And why isn't it just going to the subways? Mm. So last thing there, and then we should stop talking about a billion here, a billion there, and get to the state budget and real money. <laughs> um, but just explain how it is that the city saved $30 million, and if you add operating and capital, the, the, this costs a little more than 10 times as much money and what this is about. And you can read more, obviously, at thecity.nyc, uh, where Rosie's story is up. So the city um, did a kind of confusing thing when it looked at these two different bids for who would operate the ferry service. What they did was they compared the operating expenses. So they said, okay, this New York Waterway, which runs the commuter ferries on the Hudson, New York Waterway will do this uh, along with two other groups, the Durst, former owners of New York Water Taxi, and Billy Bay, that this hometown crew will do it for $199.9 million, I think it was, and that, and and San Francisco company Hornblower will do it for uh, 168.4. But what they didn't take into account when comparing those two things and saying one was cheaper than the other which isn't the only reason they chose them, but still the city said that it mattered, was the New York Waterway deal included the use of boats. You don't have to buy extra boats to, to do that deal. The vessel usage was included in the $199 million. The Hornblower deal, as it came out, ended up with the city footing the cost of buying these boats. In, in the initial contract, it was going to be, uh, I think, $76 million or so. That got upped. Then they made three of the boats bigger. Uh, into 82, 84 million. And now that they've decided to expand and expand, uh, they've already committed to 232 million essentially. I say committed because there's a, a part of the contract that allows Hornblower to obligate the city to buy the entire fleet. So they've already sunk 232 million on boats they've ordered, 38 boats, and they have allocated in the capital plan uh, a full 369. So would it have cost millions more potentially under the uh, waterway deal if the city had expanded to this level under them? Yeah, because you could have vessel usage charges that would bring it up a bit. Would it have cost hundreds of millions of dollars to have vessel usage on those boats? Uh, that's that's not clear and the city isn't even 
making that argument exactly. They just say that uh, they think it's fiscally smart to own the boats in the long run. Owning the boats means owning a lot of other maintenance woes. And I'm just a little frustrated because it seems as though there's a potential to throw good money after bad. And it seems like we've already done that. It it kind of feels like what Robert Moses used to kind of strong arm people into doing. So it's like, well, you're already, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. And then you just keep putting more and more money into it. It also means we're locked into this scale of ferry program. So, you know, with these subsidies the way they are, as the CBC report paints this pretty high level commitment per ride, we can't say, oh, you know what? Like, this is a little too big. This is costing too much money. We want to, like, scale it back. We're going to own these. The city can sell them. But it's taking on a lot of risk. Before we pivot, um, just to go back to your concessions, I looked it up. And essentially, they say um, the newsstand is the concession sort of brand that's on the ferry. And to quote, it's kind of like your favorite bodega and favorite blog had a baby. In our shops, you'll find the tastiest snacks and drinks, essentials from sunblock to phone chargers, and a rotating mix of tech, fashion, health, and other products, all geared towards the commuter. End quote. I don't really understand how a... Okay, I don't don't get it. I don't know who wrote this, but... F-A-Q. Is there any way to – a lot of people do like the ferry and they, they seem like they could be convenient for underserved communities when it comes to mass transit. What – is there any possibility at this point of making them more accessible? You mean the integrated real fare card? Yeah. Yeah. And they are – you know, there are definitely real New Yorkers using them. There are commuters using them. I don't want to make it sound like – I mean the CBC report makes clear that it's this is this heavy leisure use. But there are still some commuters – doing it. You know, the big question is the integrated fare card, because I think the thing that's lost on certain people at the highest levels of city government has been that three bucks a day matters to people. It's not nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think there are people in the administration that just don't have their minds around that. So, yes, when when they go to the, um, what is it called, the the Swipe? Swipeless card, the Oyster card kind of thing. You know, there's been talk that things could be integrated at that point. If it's integrated into the MTA fair, I think that'll make some difference for people. But isn't that an Albany conversation? Yeah. To well, do it's that? an MTA. Yeah. Has so, to happen. And this right. brings us to the budget. Okay. And just last point, I, I have – go on to the NYC Ferry Twitter page and I just want to point out that there is an artist renditioning uh, for Happy St. Patrick's Day and it was six people of color and four white folks. <laughs> it's a car- the cartoon the version cartoon of is the like, ferry you would is think that all it was up in there and it's very integrated. There is a black man with a, a blonde mustache. Handlebar mustache at that. <laughs> Have you ever seen that many black people dressed up for St. Patrick's Day? In I one mean, place? I wear green just to, you know, in solidarity, but come on, New York City Ferry. Um, yeah, this is definitely an ad for some sort of hipster nonsense. No one, city facilities should be selling anything except pretzels. This goes for parks, ferries, all these places. Pretzels are cool. Water is cool. Hey, right? what about hot dogs? Hot dogs is cool. No, hot dogs, hot dogs sorry, are disgusting. I do not want to be in an enclosed space with anyone eating a boiled hot dog. Fair. Fair. <laughs> or but, the after effects of such. But, but, but all the newsstands in the city are all fucked up. So if you go to Times Square, named for the New York Times, right, the newsstands in Times Square, and they still have newsstands because of these stupid concession deals. They don't sell newspapers because they have this incredibly limited space. They're not allowed to sell expensive things, and newspapers are not worth the space they take up mm-hmm. in New York Times Square, outside of the New York Times headquarters. Yeah, It's crazy. Um, but in these public places, 
There should not be cool food trucks. There should not be cool stuff at, at higher price points. There should be either nothing for sale or like real basic things. I would like water. You don't want some $6 nuts? Because I'm, I'm putting my money on the fact that there are going to be some mixed nuts with some raisins in it for $6 or more. And or they're going to be coated with pepper no and olive oil. Oh, Lord. Shout, if I get something out. with sea salt and chocolate, oh. I'm over it. <laughs> Go up to the High Line and it's like, oh, you know, you know, have a real fancy thing and like they give you a massage and like like oh, on your neck okay. or something and it's like here's your oyster <laughs> this ice cream. Took a turn. <laughs> I, it, it's all fancy. It's all fancy. It's very fancy. It's a f- park, right? And it is next to the largest housing projects in Manhattan, and like nobody there goes up. There's nothing stopping anyone to, but it's just straight up. Coded for like who this belongs to. It's got narrow points of entry. You're up there and it feels nice. You're on a date and it's like I don't want to drop twenty three dollars for like fries and two beers. Right. Well, Harry, that's, that's a right. separate episode because those space. are some invisible boundaries where there's you know you don't see a, a real cross section. I think of New Yorkers. You see a lot of tourists and you see a lot of wealthy New Yorkers, but I don't think that there's enough of a cross section. I think that linking this to the ferry and linking this to so many quote unquote public things in New York, mm. they're built and set up and marketed such that they're for, quote-unquote, New Yorkers. But when we, you know, literally scratch the surface, we don't even have to dig a little bit deeper. There, It's for X percent of New Yorkers who make X percent of the money. You know, having, you know, been on Columbia's campus for years, you don't see people from the original community ever even walking across campus. because it's And it's a, quote-unquote, open campus. It's not Harlem anymore. It's Morningside Heights. Oh, listen, well... It's been Morningside Heights for a long time. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a different episode about making white people feel better about dropping their kids off in Harlem. Um, and Columbia is a real estate agent that happens to teach kids on the side, as is NYU. <laughs> Thanks, McSilver. That's all universities, unfortunately, major cities. Except, except, interestingly, CUNY to some extent and SUNY to a lesser extent. And this is one of the issues because I think SUNY is less so because it's a very powerful landowner where it is. Um, with having Cuomo try to essentially smush the uh, systems together and take – total control. That's a totally other totally separate episode. I think we've got like our next two Alex months. Alex is going to beat us. <laughs> She's going to beat us. Wait, wait, can I get, a, can I get a, a picture of that? No, no, no one there can see, but it was like an emoji of a head explosion. Okay. Uh, budget. Budget. Okay. Oh. Said budget. Natural transition? Well, I mean, whenever you know we're curious about something, let's follow the money. So you obviously um, have been following this very closely. What in the budget are you inspired, excited about, or sort of what's your overall take? Cuomo, of course, is riding through the streets in a white horse like, I did it. Not we. I did it. Where are we now? I think some of the criminal justice reforms are interesting. You mm-hmm. know, discovery reform, you can see public defenders talking about it on Twitter, really excited about what it means for them, which basically means that prosecutors have to give them evidence that they're going to use and then they have an actual deadline instead of just kind of an amorphous. So th- this is like a huge, this actually makes a huge difference to defendants and especially like anything true for like poor people and overloaded public defenders who are trying to wrangle prosecutors into handing things over. I mean, this is going to make, a, that's going to make a big difference to people. It's sort of crazy, right? Like no one pays this much attention to this stuff who's not involved, but like almost no cases go to trial here. That's right. If you don't go to trial, prosecutors have have all this stuff. The defense doesn't know what they have. They don't have to turn it over. Even if they go to trial up until now, it's like basically right at the eve of trial. And the stuff the prosecutors are supposed to hand over ends up has been very much sort of at their discretion in a lot of cases 
in practice. And this seems like, a, I think to me, like a sort of a quietly a really big shift in how the justice system works and people's ability to plea out and who gets held pre-detention and all that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the difficult to pin down forces here is the pressure to take a plea. And, the, you know, bail connects to that, too, because people don't want to stay in jail for a really long time if they can't afford bail. A lot of times people ultimately just take a plea. So if you don't really know what the evidence is against you and you can't get get out of jail because you can't afford bail, the pressure to take a plea is really high, um, which pr- gives a lot of leverage to prosecutors who fought these reforms for the most part, uh, not all of them, but who opposed especially these, some of these provisions in the bail reform, which while it doesn't do everything that people wanted it to do, it doesn't totally end cash bail. In fact, it only really ends it for misdemeanors and certain felonies, but but it doesn't end it for many, many felonies. All those people with misdemeanors and with for people with some felonies, it gets them out of jail. It removes that pressure to take a plea even if you didn't do it, which is, you know, the Khalif Browder story has triggered so much of this the scrutiny of how long people were staying in New York jails and why cases were dragging on for so long came out of uh, the story of what happened to Khalif Browder uh, and Jennifer Gonerman's story about him and The New Yorker, who was incarcerated for years uh, on Rikers for allegedly stealing a backpack, which uh, ultimately was dropped. Not this, the backpack, the charges, right? He was yeah. never convicted, for those who don't know the account. That's right, right. And for those who don't, no, he was never um, convicted. After he spent all that time waiting for trial, he went home. And they say that the trauma that was caused by being in Rikers so long caused him massive amounts of PTSD, and he eventually committed suicide. He was, yeah, he was held in solitary confinement for a total of years. And I, I believe Gonerman reports. And so, so this, so, so some of this stuff is a response to this. Now, in the general kind of blanket categorization of exempting misdemeanors from bail but not violent felonies, Khalif Browder would not have benefited from this. Now, the advocates fought for his robbery to charge to be included on this list. So actually, you know, he would benefit this. So there's not the headline, all this bail reform in Khalif Browder's name, but actually Khalif Browder wouldn't have benefited from it. That's not true. Robbery 2 is included. But it's a good reminder of the fact that for allegedly stealing a backpack, Mm -hmm. he was charged with a violent felony. So often we talk about, you know, you hear talk about uh, violent, oh, but it's a violent crime. Well, violent crime, uh, you know, is a pretty stretchy category. It doesn't just mean like murder and rape. So the big reform that didn't happen was marijuana Mm-hmm. which seemed like it was on the um, pathway in New Jersey and then in New York and, and then hit pause in both states. What what happened there? Well, you know, New York has this bizarre system where we think all legislating has to happen in the budget, which, you know, gives the governor total control. But, you know, the legislature could legislate and pass a law. So, you know, marijuana didn't make it in. Driver's license for immigrants did not make it in. Those things could still happen, but yeah, there's this tradition, right, that everything has to be packed into the budget. Why is that? Is why is that the tradition? 
I mean, to try and essentially is like a game theory perspective where I'm trying to force your hand because we have mutual interests all intertwined. Right. You're not going to vote the whole thing down necessarily. Because I, I may want Because you disagree with some, some little part of it. Right. Now, I mean, is this bail reform really going to, you know, make a substantive difference? I'm also thinking about Cy Vance in 2021 and I'm sort of thinking about him, his future, and kind of how all these new policies might affect how he runs his shop since he's a little dormant and now he seems to be waking up. But now we see he's waking up in five-star hotels in Paris. But Read about it at thecity.nyc. Yeah, I thought that was a great piece. Um, that was Ravan, right? Yeah, my colleague Ravan has a piece about um, forfeiture funds that Vance is spending on travel to different conferences, totaling nearly $250,000. And a great uh, graphic when you compare him to his four other colleagues where Gonzalez spent, I think, $3,600. I mean, it's it's insane. So anyway, so, I so just it'll be to interesting to see if if DAs implement this stuff, especially you know the disclo- the discovery reforms before January twenty twenty before they have to. Will they will willingly do it, um, or uh, or will they drag their feet? I mean, you know, to some degree, it's like we talk to DAs as if they are the experts on this reform stuff. When a, the reform stuff is a response to their the, you know, the bail that their own ADAs ask for and mm-hmm. the the practices that have developed within DAs offices. So, you know, they're not really the champions leading these these fights for the most part. Hammer, colon, abolish nails. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, exactly, yeah. Listen to our episode with uh, Eric Gonzalez where he makes an interesting case for for him being that sort of reformer, rhetorically at least, uh, which is a lot of very broad, non-discreet promises that are also like a series of headline lines that if he doesn't do, maybe voters or others will hold him to account. And I think in the city he is doing the most of anyone. Yes. That's – that seems clear. Rosie, thank you for coming in. This has been awesome. Um, what should we be looking forward to from you and the city? NYC. You know, we just want to do stories that really matter to people that wouldn't be getting done otherwise, that, that people with money and power aren't paying PR people to call us and ask us to do. There's a lot of – there's plenty of that. We want to do the stories that regular people are seeing and 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 – also wondering, like, why is this this way, and and why, you know, and then we can track it back and try to figure it out. So, so please call us. And now, New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. Hi, Senator Biaggi. It's Harry. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I'm curious because you're one of the uh, the people who's been putting Cuomo, uh, the governor. On blast, uh, particularly about this fundraising, and this is really new uh, to Albany, at least, and, and not not sort of how this discourse has, has gone previously. Was there a moment that sort of led you to decide we're, we're just going to uh, speak straight and directly about this, or or how did that come about? Well, I mean, first of all, it's a very good question, and second of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I am. It's, you know, if you're following closely throughout the campaign, and then also you know throughout the beginning months of the legislative session, um, I think it's pretty clear that I am someone who is not afraid to speak truth, is not afraid to shine a light in places that are very dark, and this is just one of those examples. I think that when it comes 
too money in politics. There is not a human being on planet Earth that would disagree that it has a corrupting force. And so when you look at the timing of when the uh, fundraiser was and who was present, which is incredibly important, right, our state budget director, um, two weeks before the final budget in the state of New York is finalized, I think it's pretty fair to say that that was an inappropriate timing um, of that event. And some of the people in the room, of course, had had some items before the state and business before the state. And I think that that's just unacceptable. And so as a way to um, spin this into something positive instead of just viewing more negativity towards it, um, I will be introducing legislation that will, to the greatest extent possible, um, ban fundraising during um, the fund the, the state budget period. And so we are determining what is the most effective and what will um, be the most productive um, way to do this. But there should absolutely be no uh, allowances of fundraising while we're making one of the most important fiscal decisions of the year uh, for our state. So this is 175 and a half billion dollar budget, and this was largely hashed out behind closed doors. Can you talk a little about the uh, about the process here and sort of uh, sort of seeing that, or are we seeing the closed door firsthand for the uh, first time? I would I would really love to actually. Um, I, I want to just be super clear about where I stand here. I think it is very important for anyone anyone listening to understand uh, where the powers are in terms of this budget process. Because of a case, Silver v. Pataki, um, that was decided in our state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, the executive branch of our government has an, has an inordinate amount of power when it comes to the budget, and they are also able to put into our budget policy items. I think one of the things that is quite uh, alarming is that our budget has policy in it. When you think about policy or legislative ideals, you think about the legislature being able to legislate. That's one of our constitutional responsibilities. So that's one aspect of this. The other aspect is that even though from our majority leader and our conference, we were able as a conference to come together and to work in budget working groups and go through different items and hash things out and talk about our purposes and, and the things that we care about. Um, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of these final decisions are happening to you exactly what you said, behind closed doors um, without um, a great amount of transparency um, and accountability. And that makes it very hard um, to be able to know what specific items you're, you're fighting for in any given day. And let me just give you an example of why this is so challenging. So there are nine bills that we voted on for the budget this past Sunday into Monday morning. And in each one of those bills, there are hundreds of items that have fiscal implications and have money that's allocated to them. And so if you're talking about... Um, health or if you're talking about criminal justice or if you're talking about our school funding. I mean, each specific category has so many different items to it, which makes it actually a process um, that is easy to keep in the dark. And so one of the things that I think is very important moving forward 
forward is not only understanding and learning and studying every single section of this budget, but most importantly, to be able to be at those tables too, to be able to have those conversations. Because at the end of the day, the members are the ones who are elected. The members are the ones who have the responsibilities to their district. And the members are the ones who are going to have to respond and report back to all of the people who put us into office. And so it is. it only follows logically that we should also be at those final negotiating tables. Senator, until this year at least, um, at the end of the day, most members seem like they were pretty comfortable hiding behind the head of their um, of their half of the the legislature. The, um, is this something that that within the caucus that members are pressing Andrea Stewart Cousins to to change to open up that door? Um, well, if I understand your question correctly, um, it is that are any of the members or the new members willingly? Um, wanting to be at the, that table and wanting to open up the process. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of, of course, all of the other members, but what I will say is that for myself um, and for individuals who are new to this process, um, a lot of us ran on platforms of transparency and accountability and good government. And when you think about what the state budget means and what the implications of passing a state budget for one of the largest economies in the entire world um, is there's no doubt that there should be more transparency as part of this process. So that will be something that I'm going to be fighting for. And I spoke about it briefly when I was on the floor giving my remarks for the revenue portion of the budget, um, because the fact of, of the matter is that there is a process that we've been doing for practically 30 years um, that is not necessarily up with the times. And I think because we have new energy and we have a newfound excitement around state government, we should be excited about the fact that there are people who are even interested in the state in the state budget as much as they are. And we should take advantage of that by allowing for a more transformative process that is more inclusive. And every single person in the state of New York, all 20 million of them, deserve to know where their tax dollars are going. And that is something I'm going to, to work very hard to achieve. So can you list, as you see it, what the most significant budget wins were this year with, uh, with the sea change coming to Albany and Democrats finally controlling the uh, state Senate and, and a lot of new members and where things fell short and there's more to be done either in the legislative session or in next year's budget? Absolutely. So I will just start by saying probably the thing that I'm most proud of are our criminal justice reforms, um, specifically our for bail reform, speedy trial reform, and for discovery reform. Um, we were also able to include congestion, a congestion pricing plan. Um, for those of us who are downstate, this is incredibly important. We were also able to, within that plan, allocate 10% to go to Metro North in the Hudson Valley and 10% to go to the Long Island Railroad. So of the revenue that comes in, um, that I think is a very fair allocation of funds. Um, we were able to allocate money for the DREAM Act, $27 million for the DREAM Act, um, almost $8 million for adult literacy. We were able, as you know, we passed a lot of voting reforms earlier in the session, and we were able to put almost $25 million towards early voting and e-poll books. Um, we banned plastic bags, which I believe is probably one of the best green measures that we took. Um, we also were able to think 
about um, campaign finance reform. Now, that will lead me into the things that I am probably the most disappointed about, which is that I fought very hard for campaign finance reform during my campaign and have been incredibly vocal about the need for a public funding of elections. And in this um, budget set of bills, um, we have something that is basically a commission to determine what exactly will go into public financing in the state of New York. Um, I am disappointed with that primarily because um, the commission is giving power to eight individuals who will be appointed by the executive, by the assembly, by the Senate to come up with a plan. Um, The most important part of it that I find to be disappointing is that essentially what it does is it takes a look at fusion voting. Um, Fusion voting, whether depending upon where you stand on it, is a practice whereby if let's say you're running on the Democratic line and you're also running on the Working Families Party line, you are able to aggregate both of the number of voters who vote for you on each line to give you a final count. And that's how many people will vote for you in that election. That's how you determine who wins or loses. Um, The governor put that into this specific portion of the bill, primarily because he has um, a bone to pick with the Working Families Party. I think that any type of political retribution should be kept out of our budget. Um, Our budget is not a game to be played with. And so that part of it was pretty disappointing. Also, I have to say, um, the full funding of our public schools is without doubt one of the most important things that we can do um, in our state and as legislators, the things that we're fighting for. And we have in our budget, even though we have over $1 billion more towards education funding, the foundation aid portion which is the portion that goes to our public schools, is the same amount as last year. And we fought very hard, very, very hard, to make sure that this number um, could go up um, and the executive would not budge. And I think that that just begs the question, why exactly is it that we are having such a hard time increasing one of the most important numbers to create an education for all? individuals, no matter what zip code you're living in, that is a high quality across the entire state. So we're going to keep fighting for that, but I have to say that um, that's perhaps one of the most um, disappointing parts of it. And mainly the reason I'm disappointed about school funding is because our entire budget is $175 billion, and if you look at $618 million towards foundation aid funding, that's not even one one-hundredth of the budget. And we know that education is one of the most important pillars of allowing for a human being to have opportunity um, and access to whatever they'd like to pursue in their lives. And so we will be making lots of noise around that. So so before we run out of time here, two, two last quick questions for you. Speaking of transparency, um, mm-hmm. how, did, how did the MTA end up with a new leader through the budget? Yes, yes, good question. Um, I'm assuming that what you're referring to is the... Um, Pat Foy, the chairman of the MTA, which was a Senate confirm on Sunday into Monday. Um, So during the budget process, um, resolutions were proposed um, to the Senate to confirm certain leaders who would be part of the MTA. And Pat Foy um, was one of those individuals that came through. I have to say that the timing of it, in my opinion, was 
I think I, I don't think that it had to be at the same time as the budget. Although you know whether we did it the day before or the next day, I guess we have, have the same result. Um, but you're basically touching on a, a note that I think is larger, which is that when we're doing the budget and we're completing the budget and we're voting on the budget and arguing about the budget, we should just be focusing on the budget. We should not be focusing on political appointments or certain policy measures. And I could not agree with you more that it, it in my opinion, should not have been during the budget process. Hey, thank you, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes. I hope you'll come in in person at some point for for, for a longer conversation. And um, appreciate it. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me on. F A Q. Hi, I'm Victoria Bekempis. This week's in the courts isn't in the courts per se like you're used to. Um, it's going to be something better, bigger, more badass. Bad. A teaser to a special breakaway podcast, Just Us, FAQ NYC's new deeper dive into all the weird shit that goes on in New York courts, as well as all the other stuff related to criminal justice. This week, we have Christina Carrega talking about the guilty verdict of Chanel Lewis in the Karina Vetrano case. Now, let's get into the Chanel Lewis case. It's been winding through New York courts for a while now and uh, of late dominating national media. Alex, want to give us a rundown on the case? Sure. No problem. Chanel Lewis was accused of killing jogger Karina Vetrano and found guilty Monday night, April 1st, of first-degree murder and other charges. The case was tried in Queen's Supreme Court, and it was full of twists and turn. After both sides had rested, the defense lawyers received an anonymous letter claiming that evidence was withheld from the defense and that police initially suspected two, quote, jacked-up white guys. We're quoting the letter here, the anonymous letter. Lewis's lawyers believe that there was a bunch of information wrongly withheld, but the judge, Justice Michael B. Alois, refused to hear the issue. Chanel Lewis's first trial was in November 2008. It ended with controversy because the same judge declared a mistrial after only 13 hours of jury deliberations. And issues surrounding the retrial are expected to prompt an appeal. So what are some of the other elements of this case that make it such an like such an important and strange happening in the city? Oh, it's the arrest. Here you have six months later, you know, they have a full on we're looking for who killed this girl. We need some witnesses. We need this. We need that. According to trial testimony, the task force of the Karina Vetrano murder case went from like over 100 detectives scouring the streets of Howard Beach in Brooklyn. Um, I don't know if they touched Long Island. I mean, it is right there, right? But anyway, um, they were hitting the streets, you know, following leads for a long time. And then the list of detectives dwindled down to like maybe under 20. Right. A hundred detectives on one case. Mm -hmm. How how often does that happen? I mean, do you see that in all communities or? Well, any person will tell you, depending on the affluence of the family, it will influence how an investigation rolls. And like I mentioned, the father was a retired FDNY. His I mean, they're friends. all out in Howard's Beach and Ro um, Rockaways, right? The retired cops, yeah. firefighters. Right. You know what I mean? There's like a whole community of retired 
first responders and law enforcement. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a secret out there in those areas. Well, you would I, think. I guess what I was trying to say is if something similar happened to a, a person in East New York, which is the neighborhood right— A minority in East New York. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, same circumstances. Are there a um, hundred detectives out yeah. there dredging the— wetlands or the whatever. weeds yeah i mean i'm still waiting to find out if they're gonna find somebody who chopped up that girl's body in the canarsie park what happened to that case chopped the girl body up put it in the bag and left it on the side of the road there's a lot of law enforcement in howard's beach so there's a lot of detectives on this case yeah more than would be in other places in the city especially in like low-income areas absolutely and then you know she was a pretty she was beautiful as the prosecutor liked to repeatedly say beautiful karina you know beautiful beautiful we learned very few details about her through the trial but you know independent reporting um you learned that you know she's she was 30 years old she was a st john's university graduate um she traveled the world she was an avid runner she ran every day she did marathons and when she did do her travels she um you know hiked and she went on all these different like adventurous trails like for her short-lived life she was very well traveled and um she also had an online blog where she did her poetry and some of it maybe i'm misinterpreting it but it alluded to her going through a lot of struggles with you know when she was a she was much younger she may have had had some type of sexual assault that happened to her and she talked about that on the blog which is still live and up until a few days ago people were still logging on and reading it so I don't know if it's the family just trying to have a little piece of her still she also went into acting she did a couple of roles so she was doing stuff you know she was becoming something you know she was molding herself into her 30s right right so the arrest was what was strange okay okay so essentially at some point this detective that was assigned to the case john russo lieutenant john russo he also lives in howard beach and he was assigned to the case as they're getting towards january of 2017 he remembers calling 911 on a person who was wandering in the neighborhood back in may of 2016 And he was like, I need to find out who that kid was. Um, And then as the trial went on, he described the fact that the first time he saw this person in the neighborhood, he said he followed him in his car as the person was on foot for 45 minutes while his two young daughters are in the back seat followed him to make sure where was he going, what was he doing. And then he described like how he went up this block, he went down that block, da 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 And then he calls 911 and you hear the 911 call and he's like, I don't know what he's doing, but he's not, he doesn't, he's not supposed to be in this neighborhood. I don't know him, whatever. And then we learned in the second trial that there was another neighbor in Howard Beach who also said the words of, I've never seen him before. He doesn't belong here. You could revert back to the uh, Michael Griffin case. Okay. Right? That's where Howard Beach um, communities um, racially charged incidents started from there. Michael Griffin was, um, he was attacked with bats from the neighborhood people. You know? That's what I'm thinking. And then there was a case later on in the 2000s where um, a bunch of kids, African-American, were in the Howard Beach area. And they were chased into the Belt Parkway and the kid got ran over by a car. A lot of racially motivated um, situations come from Howard Beach. I, as a reporter going into Howard Beach, I have been 
yelled at. I've been called the police. I've been called on by the police for simply doing my job and, you know, press pass on everything. Didn't that happen when you were reporting on the Chanel Lewis case? Yeah. Neighbors, you know, they were like, what are you doing here? You what, Who are you with? I mean, and you're like, can you read my press yeah, pass? It says it press on it. Didn't do matter. They not teach you how to read it. Didn't it's matter. It's like racist school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got treated terribly when I covered this case and other cases in that neighborhood. Just being black in Howard Beach is not a thing to be. And <laughs> it's not a thing to be. And unfortunately, um, somehow, some way, this detective, who they called the rock star in the Daily News, you know, he tracks down the, the beat cops that pulled that, you know, stopped and frisked him, which at the time was unconstitutional. And, you know, he didn't get a summons or arrested or anything like that. And then an hour after he um, left the scene, he calls the cops because he sees Chanel again in the Rockaways eating a hamburger. And the police officer he called, Russo, who he called, was like, yeah, I know. We took him to McDonald's. He was hungry. Like, why are you calling the cops so many times on this one kid that you saw in your neighborhood and it just didn't make any sense where he got this notion that we have to call the police on every person that doesn't look like me in my neighborhood so chanel we later learned has learning disabilities he actually went to school at a special school in the rockaways which is not too far from over there and he says he goes over there to get food normally but when the police showed up at his house he consented to a dna swab and somehow some way male donor a um, DNA that was found under Karina's fingernails and on her on her um, cell phone matched male donor A, which was AKA allegedly Chanel Lewis. So fast forward, second trial on the eleventh hour, anonymous letter comes into the defense, and it's a person who claims to be a law enforcement agent who was involved with the Chanel Lewis um, investigation, Karina Vetrano investigation. They lay out all this information about the case that. The prosecutor, I mean, the defense has been wanting to get for years, and the prosecutor has denied the defense from getting. And it had even a theory of how Chanel's DNA ended up on her. The anonymous writer claims that possibly Karina and him met each other. And in a way, as strangers would, they bumped into each other at a place on Cross Bay Boulevard. She dropped her phone. He picked it up for her. She went about her business. That's the theory that this anonymous writer has. The anonymous writer also accompanied police information of mugshots of people who are African-American who were arrested in the Howard Beach area between 2013 and after her death in 2016. None of them are Chanel. Russo claimed that they got Chanel's address because he got a summons for being a peeping Tom in 2013, but it's not in the records. So when the defense went to court before closing arguments to ask, like, hey, can we open up an inspection of this information, the judge said no. And the judge said no, 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 no. We talked to Christina about a million other things involving this case. Uh, There's an anonymous letter, a conflicted juror. To hear more about them, check out episode 31 of FAQ, Just Us, where Christina is going to break everything down into great detail and tell us more about what this means, both for the case and in general. We got 45 minutes of true crime coming your way. Click on episode 31 of FAQ. This is Alex Brooklyn and Victoria Bekempis for not exactly in the courts per se. FAQ. 
NYC is brought to you with support from Civil, a blockchain company working to remake the economics of journalism and listeners like you. We are hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU Silver School of Social Work. Special thanks to Rosie Goldenson of The City, Christina Correga of ABC, and State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. This week's episode was produced by Alex Brooklyn and engineered and other stuff by Adam Kamara. Till next time, goodbye and gavolt. You know what was my weird, the weirdest thing that ever happened was they removed the word defecate from from Lauren Hill defecating on your microphone from the Fuji's album. Why would they? Why is defecate bad? I mean, I get why it's bad. It means pooping. And (laughs) (laughs) this might be the best episode of FAQ so far. (laughs) News, 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 news. New York City. FAQ. FAQ.